Louis XIV, born in 1638, was France's longest reigning king, ruling for 72 years. And he was known as the Sun King because he believed in the divine right of kings. He created an absolute monarchy. In 1643, his father, Louis XIII, realizing that his own death was imminent, made preparations to turn over his rule to his son. His son at that time was only five years old. Louis XIII brought his son to his deathbed, and he wanted to know if his son knew who he was. So he asked him, Who are you? The boy replied, Louis XIV, father. His father responded, You're not Louis XIV yet. His father died soon thereafter, and Louis did indeed become Louis XIV. Others effectively ruled in his place until he came of age, and he assumed full control in 1661. But his childhood as king, and really his entire life as king, was one of great privilege. He was surrounded by servants his entire life. He had servants to crack open the blinds when he woke up at 8 a.m., servants to shave him, servants to dress him. He lived in luxury. He transformed the hunting lodge of Versailles into the palace of Versailles, one of the greatest palaces in the world. Though busy, of course, ruling France, he just lived a life of royalty. And many people back then, even today, desire and envy such privilege. I mean, just imagine living the life of a king starting at age five. This type of privilege cannot be earned, can't be bought. You just have to be born into it. You just have to have the right parents. Even today, though monarchies have transformed into democracies, Several countries around the world still have royals who enjoy great privileges. If you're born with the right blood, you get to be a royal. If not, you're stuck being a commoner. That's just how it works. That's just how it works. The Scandinavian royals, they don't really count. They're known for their down-to-earth lifestyle. They ride around on bikes. They're very tame. But there are some countries still, Britain, Monaco, several Middle Eastern states, have royals who live up to their privileged position. Lavish lifestyles, opulent palaces, beautiful country homes, expensive cars, fine jewelry, custom-fitted clothes, hundreds of servants characterize their lives of royalty. And today we're most familiar with the British royals. Though the power of their monarchy has declined, their lifestyle has not. Queen Elizabeth II and family enjoy... Britannia, a 412-foot yacht with a 250-servant crew. There's always a 50,000-acre country home in Scotland that they can escape to. Or there's Buckingham Palace with 240 rooms and 400 servants. But perhaps greatest of all, there is Windsor, which is the traditional family retreat, with 650 rooms and, in case you get tired of walking, eight thrones to sit on. And, of course, last year we witnessed the royal wedding with Prince William and Kate Middleton. And talk about an over-the-top display of royalty. Kate arrived in a Rolls-Royce Phantom 6, William in a specially designed Bentley. The wedding ring was $11,000. The engagement ring was a million dollars. The wedding gown, $434,000. Flowers, $800,000. The cake... $80,000, $80,000, which makes it $134 per slice, by the way. 
Add to this 32 million for security, and the wedding, this was one day wedding celebration was well over 40 million dollars. Some 2 billion people were estimated to have watched the ceremony, and it captivated the world because this is the type of thing that people dream of. Everyone seemingly dreams of being royalty. Everyone wants to have what they have. Everyone wants this life of privilege. And it's true. Royalty throughout the ages have lived lives of privilege. They're greatly privileged. There's no denying that. But there is another truth. They all eventually lose their privilege. Death is a great equalizer. And even royals at some time meet the same end as commoners. Even their great status cannot save them from their mortal enemy. But as as great as the royal privilege may be, there's a greater privilege, a lasting privilege, a true privilege, and I'm talking about the privilege of salvation. There is no surpassing the privilege of knowing God, and there's no surpassing the life the recipients of this privilege receive in the age to come. And better yet, this privilege, it's open to all. You still need to be born into it. But this new birth is presented and made available to all. You must simply believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, and this greatest privilege of salvation is yours. This morning we come to finish this first section in 1 Peter. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles with me to 1 Peter. Peter writes this epistle to encourage Christians who are suffering, and he spends a couple of verses introducing himself and greeting his readers. But then he jumps right into it, and immediately he gets into his first topic, the greatest of topics, and that is salvation. This is the groundwork. This is the framework for what's to come. In verses 3 through 9 in particular, the emphasis is on the greatness of our salvation, the the certainty of our salvation. Peter highlights our future vindication and the finality of our coming salvation, even despite present trials. But here's the thing. If you just read verses 3 through 9, with all their emphasis upon the future, our future salvation, our future vindication, you can kind of get the impression that God's people are no better off now than before Christ came. Before Christ came, God's people suffered while waiting for rescue. And after Christ came, God's people still suffer and they're still waiting for that rescue. So so what's the big deal? We're still being afflicted and our complete salvation is still future. So, So what's so great about this salvation? Well, Peter addresses this in verses 10 through 12. Peter stresses that far from being underprivileged, Christians have received God's most special favor. And no matter how bad their sufferings may be, they still occupy a position of great privilege, and that position can never be taken away from them. Our salvation is truly great, greater than you probably think. And those who have received it in God's eyes are highly, highly privileged. Realizing this, our response should be one of profound appreciation. And that's what Peter is getting at. Very shortly, Peter is going to exhort us to press on in living the Christian life, to walk in a manner 
worthy of this salvation. But if you don't marvel at your salvation, if you don't appreciate it, if you don't cherish it, if you don't thank God for it, you're not going to be able to truly walk in a manner worthy of it. So that's Peter's goal here. He wants to inspire us to greater Christian living by exposing us to the grandeur, majesty, and greatness of our new covenant salvation. And regardless of what you're going through, you still have this privilege, the privilege of salvation, and that cannot be taken away. Let's turn our attention now to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, and come to see and appreciate our privileged salvation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. From this text, I want to give you five reasons why your present salvation is a privileged salvation so that you may grow in your appreciation of it. Five reasons why your present salvation is a privileged salvation. And the first reason is this. The prophets investigated it. The prophets investigated it. From verse 10. Look at verse 10 again. He says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Verse 11, Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you. Here we learn of the ministry of the Old Testament prophets in predicting and preparing the way for salvation. And just to start us off here, who were these prophets and what did they do? Well, the prophets were God's spokesmen in the Old Testament. They were his mouthpiece. They declared his word to his people. They proclaimed divine revelation. They pronounced judgment. They predicted the future. And they called the people to faith and repentance. And the office of prophet began, do you know where? In Deuteronomy 18. If you remember, after the Exodus, the nation, they left Egypt and they came to Mount Sinai. And there God really visited the nation. He came down, he revealed his word, his law to them, and he showed his power and his glory in a display of fire and smoke and thunder and lightning. And the people seeing God's glory, they realized they were in the presence of his power. They trembled in fear. They were afraid and they cried out to Moses saying, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. The people understood that they were not worthy to stand before this God. They needed someone to stand between them and God. And guess what? They were right. They did need someone to stand between them and God. And in Deuteronomy 18, these these go-betweens, these mediators, became the prophets. 
Moses was the first true prophet, and many others would follow. And their job was to stand in between God and the people, directing the people according to God's word. If the people rejected the prophets, if they didn't listen to the prophets, they were effectively rejecting God and not listening to God. So really, the office of prophet was of the utmost importance in the Old Testament. And there was no greater status in the Old Testament than that of being one of God's true prophets. Some people associate prophets or prophecy with future events only, as if they were just glorified fortune tellers. But that's not true. They were really primarily concerned with their own day, their own people, the current status of Israel, and their message was primarily for their own people. It is true, though, they did have forward-looking messages. That is true. Verse 10 even points out how they prophesied of the grace that would come. Now, this is not to say that grace did not, did not exist in the Old Testament or that the prophets looked forward to a time of saving grace that they did not know. Rather, Old Testament saints, they were saved in the same way we are, by God's grace, through faith, apart from the works of the law, just like New Testament saints. God's grace is crystal clear in the Old Testament. In fact, just one example, the prophet Jonah, Jonah was a prophet, the main reason he didn't want to preach the Old Testament gospel to the Ninevites is because he knew God was so gracious he actually would forgive these wicked people. It's all over. At the same time, though, God's grace definitely does find a greater expression on this side of the cross. And the prophets knew this. They knew at least that a day was coming where God's grace would outpace its current expression in their day. And they look forward to that time of new covenant blessing and grace. Today we get to enjoy it. The greater grace that they long for. Have you stopped lately and just thank God for his grace, the blessings you get to receive in your salvation? In First Peter, these prophets prophesied of the grace to come. And he says also, they made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. Here we see that in addition to speaking God's words, the prophets searched God's word. They investigated it. They studied it. He says they made careful searches and inquiries of both previous scriptures and their own prophecies. The prophets, they did not always understand their own oracles. Sometimes their own visions were clouded. They didn't understand their meaning. perfect example of this is Daniel. Daniel is one of the greatest prophets, yet even he did not understand some of his revelations. In Daniel 7.15, after being given a, a vision of future kingdoms and the Son of Man, he didn't understand. He didn't get it. He, he didn't understand what he was seeing. Daniel 7.15 says, As for me, Daniel... My spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Verse 16. So I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. He's like, what does this mean? I, I don't understand what these symbolize. And so he had to ask. Even the prophets did not have all the answers all the time. So what did they do about it? At times, they studied they made careful searches and inquiries, Peter says. The word translated careful searches means to 
diligently search and seek for something as if you're trying to consider every point of view. And the word for inquired means to search for something hidden like miners digging for gems. And that's what the prophets did. At times, they dug through their own prophecies or older scriptures to try and find the true meaning of what had been said. And again, we see this exemplified by Daniel. Later in Daniel chapter 9, we find Daniel looking through these scrolls, these books of Jeremiah's prophecies, trying to find out what they mean. And he found it. He discovered, he discerned that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. He read, he studied, he interpreted, he figured it out. The point I'm making here, the point that Peter's making, is that even the prophets search through God's word to find out the truth. What were they looking for, though? What exactly were they trying to figure out? Well, the prophets were interested in revelation concerning their own time, concerning Israel's future, yeah. But most importantly, most of all, they really want to know more about this figure called the Messiah. That's what they really wanted to know. And along these lines, they had two basic questions. Who and when? That's what they wanted to know. That's what Peter says in verse 11. Who and when? They wanted to know the person, the time. What person, what time? Who, when? Who will this Messiah be? And when will he come? When is all this going to take place? In the Old Testament, God had revealed all these hopeful truths about a Messiah, a servant, a branch, a son of David, a son of man, They wanted to know more about this figure. The prophets knew this coming Messiah would bring salvation and deliverance to God's people. But they didn't didn't quite get it. They struggled to fit together all the pieces of the puzzle. And what, What do I mean by this? Well, as Peter says in verse 11, they sought greater understanding as to the predicted sufferings of the Messiah in light of the glories of the Messiah. This is where they really failed to understand. They struggled to understand how this suffering servant could be one and the same as this conquering Messiah. How could he suffer and be glorified? How could these both be true? That's what they struggled to fit together. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, a familiar text, but Isaiah 53. I want to show you, even in the same book, the same prophet, these, in a sense, in their eyes, conflicting pictures of the Messiah. Isaiah 53. As you know, Isaiah 53 depicts this coming Messiah as one who would suffer, suffer greatly for the people. We could read all of it, but let's just pick a few verses here. Isaiah 53, and we'll start at verse 4. Earlier in 52, this character was identified as the servant. That's why we call him the suffering servant. We'll see it again in verse 11, but look at verse 4. Speaking of this Messiah, he writes, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Jump down to verse 10. 
But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Verse 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. And there's more. We could really have read the entire chapter, but it's this picture, this vision, this prophecy of a coming servant who will come and he will suffer greatly for the people. So that's one side. That's the sufferings of the Messiah. But look, in the same book, turn back to chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 9. In the very same book, we see a description of the Messiah being victorious and triumphant. Isaiah chapter 9. Here, we have the same prophet prophesying. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of his David of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this so here's a picture of this coming messiah who will reign and rule and have government of peace and so all throughout the prophets you have these conflicting seemingly conflicting pictures of this messiah one suffering one reigning And and they didn't know how these fit together. So they searched, they inquired, they investigated. Later on in Israel's history, this is after Old Testament times, the ancient rabbis likewise struggled to fit together these two pictures of the Messiah. They didn't get it. And so what they did was they proposed a theory that there would not be one Messiah, but two Messiahs. There would be two Messiahs that would come. First Messiah was Messiah ben Joseph, or the son of Joseph. He would come, perform miracles, but he would ultimately perish. He would fall away. He would die. A second Messiah would then come, Messiah ben David, the son of David. He would conquer, rule, and ultimately lead Israel to victory and usher in the Messianic era. Today, actually, some Jews still believe in this two-Messiah idea. Actually, though, it's, it's not far off. We, standing on this side of the cross, we know the deal. We know how this fits together. There are not two messiahs, but one messiah with two comings. At first, he would come to suffer, even to die for the people. But then he would come again to usher in victory and peace. And today, though, part of our privilege is being able to see how all this fits together. That's part of our privilege. The prophet's... They longed to see what we could see, but but they couldn't. And yet we freely can. God has given us the right perspective by his grace, the privilege of having the right perspective. Just imagine you're standing, you're looking off into the distance at a mountain peak. You're head on mountain peak, and right behind it, there's a second mountain peak even further away. So you're staring at these two mountain peaks in a line. And from your perspective, they look like they're really 
right next to each other, side by side. From your perspective, you have no idea how big a valley is in between those two mountain peaks. And likewise, the prophets, they viewed the first and second comings of Christ as just really right next to each other. They couldn't see, from their perspective, the gap that was in between these two comings. But God, in his grace, has given us the privilege of of that perspective of seeing, from another angle, uh, these two comings of Christ. And we have the privilege to know this Messiah. In all their searching, Peter points out that the prophets themselves were not really serving themselves. They were serving you, us, the church. Back in 1 Peter, this word for serving pictures them as servants setting the table for others to come and feast. And that's really what the prophets did. They were preparing the way. They were setting the scene for, for us really to come and enjoy the feast of God's revealed word. Did they receive salvation? Yes, they received salvation. It's just that they didn't see its full accomplishment. They didn't see all that salvation could do. It's like owning a Lamborghini and only being able to drive 15 miles an hour. That's kind of what they had. They had salvation like us, but God has given us the privilege to drive at 100. And what's the point here? What's the point in all this? It's really simple. The point, as you consider this, is that you should be amazed and grateful. Countless holy men have died, and they would just... They would give their lives, seemingly, to trade positions with you just so that they could know and embrace the time and the person of the Messiah. He was whom they hoped in. They wanted to see him, but they died without seeing him. They looked forward to the cross, hoping, but not knowing. But God has given us the privilege to be able to look back on the cross, hoping and knowing, knowing this Messiah. And furthermore... Standing on this side of the cross, we understand that Christ had to suffer before he went into glory. We understand how this works together. And now we know that likewise, we will share his fate. The crown of thorns must come before the crown of glory. And just simply having the privilege of knowing this can encourage us and inspire us to endure and persevere. So all of this put together is the first reason why our salvation is indeed a privileged salvation of a privileged salvation. The prophets investigated it, yet we have it revealed. The prophets investigated it, yet we have it revealed. That's the first reason why our salvation is privileged. Secondly now, second reason, the Spirit revealed it. The Spirit revealed it. First, the prophets investigated it. Secondly now, the Spirit revealed it. Look at verse 11 of First Peter again. says they were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Here our subject turns from the prophets of the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit, who is referred to here as the Spirit of Christ. And that title actually was a fairly common way for New Testament saints to speak of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, especially when they're referencing the Messiah. Indeed, it was the Spirit who bore witness to Christ in the Old Testament. The Spirit is one who inspired all those prophecies of the Messiah. This title for the Holy Spirit reflects his role in inspiring and revealing the Messiah's coming work. 
The primary activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was really to point to this Messiah. That was his his job. And that's why we learn more about the Messiah in the Old Testament than the Spirit. He was the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit bearing witness to Christ. And later in 2 Peter, why don't you turn over there, 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter himself attests to the fact that the Holy Spirit is the source behind Scripture and prophecy, including Messianic prophecy. 2 Peter chapter 1, look at verse 19. He says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And there it is. You can turn back to First Peter. The Spirit, he's the one who revealed it, revealed God's word, and inspired all those prophecies. And if the Spirit didn't do this, if the Spirit did not reveal truth about the Messiah and about salvation, then guess what? Nobody would ever know. Nobody would know. We absolutely depend on the Spirit's revelation, and we depend on the Spirit's explanation his illumination as well. The prophets, as we learned, they didn't know everything about their visions, but we can't really blame them. We all need explanation, and God just didn't give them the explanation. It is there. It's in Scripture. It's plain for everyone to see. But unless God opens your eyes, you're not going to see it. And even Jesus, after his resurrection, that's when he started explaining the prophets. He was kept veiled until after the resurrection. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. I'll show you this. And keep a bookmark in Luke because we're going to come back to Luke a couple times. Luke chapter 24. It's after the resurrection. Christ appears to these two men on the road to Emmaus. And and he begins now. This is where he begins to start explaining the prophets and all they had to say about him, about the Messiah, about his coming. Christ now shows how the puzzle fits together. Luke chapter 24, look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. It's pretty amazing. Here Christ understands it's time. I've resurrected. Let me show you how it all fits together. Here's how the sufferings work. Here's how the glories work. Here's how it all fits together from the prophets, from the Old Testament. The prophets simply did not have the explanation they needed to fully understand Christ and salvation, but we do. And that's grace. And that's privilege. We do. And to us, it's, we take it for granted. This is like, oh, no-brainer. But you have to understand, back then, this was a huge deal. They, they didn't get it. But God has given us the privilege to, to rightly understand. And that's so huge. The point here, again, it's to show the privilege of our salvation. The salvation we get to experience. It's so amazing that it comes by God's own hand, God's own plan. No human imagination could have conjured it up. Rather, it had to be revealed 
by God the Spirit himself. It's, it's just it's that grandiose. It's that intricate, that elaborate, that amazing. Only God himself could grasp and create the magnitude of which Christ did, and only the Spirit could make this known to God's people. But for those of us in the church, we get the greater blessing of greater revelation. We are able to better know and experience the salvation that the Spirit reveals. That's our privilege, and that should be awe-inspiring and evoke gratitude in your hearts. The Spirit revealed it, but we get to know it. The Spirit revealed it, and we get to know it. Let's move on. Thirdly now, the third reason our salvation is privileged, the evangelists announced it. The evangelists announced it. Back in verse 12. 1 Peter 1.12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Prophets were not serving themselves, he says, but they were laying the foundation for a greater revelation to come. Before a train can go anywhere, someone's got to do the hard work of laying down the tracks. And that's what the prophets did. They laid down the tracks. And now we get to see the train. We get to ride the train. Our privilege is that we no longer live in the age of promise. We get to live in the age of fulfillment. Here in verse 12, the reference shifts away from the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament evangelists. And these men, including the apostles, they took seriously the call to make disciples, Matthew 28, or to preach the word in season and out of season, 2 Timothy 4. They understood how will people believe in him whom they have not heard, and how will they hear without a preacher, Romans 10. These are the evangelists who made it their mission to just announce the good news. And as Romans 10 goes on to say, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Here we see that these evangelists, they preach the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And this is a reference to the Spirit's coming at Pentecost. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit enabled the prophets to proclaim the Messiah's coming, but without full understanding. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit enabled the evangelists to likewise proclaim the Messiah's coming, but with full understanding. And he still does that today. Today, all of us who are believers in Christ... We have benefited from the work of the evangelists, both in the first century and today. God, by grace, he has brought someone into our lives, someone, somehow, some way, who shared the gospel with us, who imparted the message of life to us, and we were chosen to receive it. And just back in First Peter, did you see how all of this, verses 10 through 12, all of this, we are the primary beneficiaries of all that's going on here. You know, we benefit the most from the Spirit's inspiration. We benefit the most from the Spirit's illumination. We benefit the most from the prophet's predictions. We benefit the most from the evangelist's preaching. We're the ones who have received it all, the culmination of God's work. And this shows how privileged our present New Covenant salvation is. Going back to the prophets again, think about this verse. If you put a bookmark in Luke, go to Luke 10. Verse 23, just quickly here, Luke 10, verse 23. 
Think about this verse which Christ said to his disciples. Luke 10, 23. Turning to his disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. And the point he's making in First Peter is, that's us. Jesus says here, blessed are those who see and hear these things. That's us. We are the blessed ones who have been privileged to see and hear these things. The evangelists came both in the first century and today, and it's through their ministry that we know salvation. And we have the privilege of, of knowing the answers to the prophet's great question, who and when? of the Messiah. Who? When? Who? Jesus. When? On the cross. And we know. We get to know. Now, because of the gospel and salvation brought to us by the evangelists, we can read the Old Testament prophets with new eyes and new ears and a new joy as our heart is stirred in praise, seeing what they were not able to see. We can read Isaiah 53 with thanksgiving, understanding this is Jesus. And knowing that he was a suffering servant who died for our sins. And then we can read Isaiah 9 with anticipation, knowing this is Jesus who will come again to rule and reign with his people. None of this, mind you, should cause you to boast. Peter's aim is not to flaunt our privilege such that we stick up our nose at the rest of the world. Far from it. As Paul said, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer is nothing. This privilege comes to us only by grace and by the kindness of God. We're not special. There's no room for boasting. But there is room for appreciation. And that's Peter's point. That's what he's getting at. There's room for thanksgiving. And consequently, there's room for holy living. But this is what we have in Christ and in salvation. Eternal life, forgiveness, and the added blessing of knowing God and his plan more than ever before. The evangelist announced it, and we received it. Evangelist announced it, we received it. Fourthly now, fourth reason our salvation is privileged, the angels watched it. The angels watched it. Look at this one, the end of First Peter. By the way, I keep a bookmark in Luke. We'll come back to it one more time. At verse 12, in all this, he says, these are things into which angels long to look. These are things into which angels long to look. Now, that's pretty fascinating. Peter kind of throws this on here at the end of verse 12. Doesn't really offer any explanation, just, just adds it in there. And apparently, angels are the, the spectators in the drama of human redemption. The phrase, long to look, literally means to, to bend forward to examine something. You can almost picture the angels just peeking over the edge of heaven, watching human history. It was used of people watching others through a window where they're just watching. They're not involved, just watching. That's what the angels do. And actually, this is not an uncommon teaching in the New Testament that angels observe the happenings of man, especially redemptively. For example, 1 Corinthians 4.9, Paul says, For I think God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. So he's saying here, us apostles in our suffering, we're just a spectacle to angels and to men. 
Or there's Luke 15. This is a, a familiar one. If one. Last time here, if you've got your bookmark there, you can turn to Luke 15. But I'm sure you know the story. Luke 15, look at verse 8. It's Christ teaching in parables. He says, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which is lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So again, we see the angels, they appear to be very curiously interested and invested in man's salvation. You understand, angels, they're not omniscient. They're not omnipresent. They are finite creatures, and that's why they're, they're curious. They want to know, learn, understand what God is doing with man's salvation. They're not uninvolved. They are involved in salvation. Angels announced Christ's birth. They protected his childhood. They ministered to him during his testing. They attended his ascension and resurrection. And today they minister to believers. So they are involved in salvation. But for them, they will always be on the outside looking in. They will always be on the outside looking in. There's no plan of salvation for the angels. And they will never know God's special mercy, God's special grace. Thankfully, the holy angels don't need salvation, but nonetheless, they will never experience God's grace in the way that saved humans will. They're curious. They want to know what it's like, which is kind of funny because normally we wonder what it's like to be an angel, to be in the presence of God, to not be able to, or to not sin, to be holy. But angels, in one sense, seemingly want to know what it's like to be human. What's it like to receive God's special grace? They wonder at the experience of salvation. They don't know what it's like. They will never know what it's like. But the point that Peter is making here is that, look, angels, even though they are a higher creature than us, even though they are greater than us, they still never get to experience God's great grace and mercy and salvation. And that is a privilege that we enjoy. Granted, it would be better if we had never sinned at all, but nonetheless, we get to experience this special privilege of being lavished with God's grace and mercy. And even the angels want to know what that's like. Think about this. In Revelation 5, we get a glimpse into heaven where every created thing is praising Christ. Everything is just singing a song to the Lord. Revelation 5:12. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now, all the angels will be there. It's just from verse 11, it says that. They're there, they're praising Christ, they're singing the song, and so will we. But consider the difference. The angels will sing of the salvation of Christ as spectators. We will sing of the salvation of Christ as recipients. That's amazing when you think about it. That is amazing. It may sound like a broken record here, but that's kind of the point today. We have a privileged salvation. We really do. We have our privileged salvation. The angels watched it, but you experience it. The angels watched it, but you experience it. And this is our last point. You experience it. It's the last reason why our salvation is privileged. You experience 
experience it. Back in 1 Peter chapter 1, notice again this emphasis on you in this entire passage. I'm going to read our passage again. Just pay attention to the emphasis on, on you, literally you, the church. Verse 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Verse 12, it was revealed to them they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There's a focus here. Obviously, it's on Christ and salvation, but there's another focus on you. Believers living in this age after the cross are, in a sense, the focus of the prophets investigating and the spirits revealing, the evangelists announcing, the angels watching. They're watching you. Even when compared with these great groups like the prophets, the angels, we're the ones who have this incredibly privileged salvation. In all 12 of these opening verses of 1 Peter, he has tried to describe a salvation that is indescribable and unutterable and incomprehensible, and yet we have it. We actually possess that which is indescribable. And over the past three weeks in 1 Peter, our emphasis has been on one thing, salvation. Why? Because that's what Peter emphasizes. But now we're going to move on. Peter's going to shift gears. He's going to instruct us next how to live in a manner worthy of that salvation, but he had to first lay the foundation of salvation itself. But for you here today, there's no moving on unless you have this salvation. We've been talking about this privilege. Do you have it? Do you have salvation? Have you been saved? Do you know the salvation that the prophets investigated, the Spirit revealed, the evangelists announced, the angels watched? Do you know it? Sin brings damning consequences. God, however, through his Son, Jesus Christ, brings rescue. Rescue from sin and its condemnation. So have you been rescued? Have you turned away from your life of sin? Have you turned toward Christ in faith, the long-awaited Savior, Messiah? For those here who have received this gift of salvation, do you now appreciate your salvation? Do you cherish it? Do you thank God daily for it? That's Peter's whole point here. He's writing to believers, reminding them of the greatness of their salvation, that they might be moved to better appreciate it. Because only then, only when you really treasure what God has done for you, will you be ready and willing to passionately pursue a holy life in accordance with that privileged salvation. So remember. Remember and reflect on all that you have in Christ and in salvation. God has developed this magnificent plan of salvation with Christ at the center, cross at the climax, and that we get to live in it. We get to know it, to experience it to its fullest. We have so much, or so much more than the saints from ages past. And we should be thankful. And what's left to ask is, really, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with your privileged salvation? How are you using it? How are you living rightly with it?
These are the questions that we will pursue in the weeks to come. For now, let the privilege that we enjoy just sink in, take root, and result in the fruit of joy and thanksgiving. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we do offer up our thanksgiving, our praise, our appreciation for our salvation. As we reflect on Peter's words, on your words, we understand we do have it, an amazingly privileged salvation. The gift you have given us is so bountiful, so amazing, and it's long, a long time coming. Your plan has been unfolding over thousands of years, yet we here in this age are blessed and privileged enough to see it and to enjoy it in its fullest. We thank you for that. Help us now to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to live rightly. As we appreciate our salvation, may we be moved to live in accordance with our salvation. This is how we worship you, Lord, and help us to do that. Help us to worship you with our our lips and our lives, living lives of thankfulness to you for all that you have done. Bless us as we do so. May we bless you in return. In your name we pray. Amen.